We're starting a new series today called Steadfast Love. And we're going to be looking at the steadfast love of God through two of the prophetic books uh, that are probably a little bit less well known, certainly one of them is, of Hosea and Jonah. And these are the stories of two men. If you, do, you probably, if you, even if you don't go to church, you've probably heard of Jonah. A lot of people have Jonah and the big fish, Jonah and the whale, whatever. Um, and we're going to come to him later in the series. But we're going to start with another man who's, uh, whose life in some ways enacted the steadfast love of God, just like Jonah's did, in a very weird way. So these two men actually lived very different and quite strange lives. They both had extraordinary things happen to them as a means of God showing the world how his steadfast love for the world actually looks. In Jonah's case, it was the steadfast love of God to another nation, which is why Jonah ends up going, there's a storm and he gets falls, gets thrown overboard and then he gets swallowed by a fish and then he vomited back onto the land and then he goes, gets sits under a plant, a city repents. But it's all the story about how Jonah went to another nation, a, a nation of people who aren't Jewish, who aren't Israel, people like most of us, and preached to them about the steadfast love of God. Whereas the story of Hosea is very different. Hosea's story is equally weird. In fact, in some ways it's even weirder. It's just less well known because Hosea is trying to embody the love of God to Israel. But in Hosea's case, he's embodying the love of God to Israel by being told by God to marry a woman who will then cheat on him repeatedly, but Hosea needs to remain faithful to her. It's a really strange story. And the reason it it happens is because God's saying, I want you, my prophet, to know what it feels like to be God, because I have, quote, married Israel, and Israel continually cheats on me with other gods but I remain faithful to her. So it's a really strange and yet actually very powerful and often quite moving story in his life as well. So we're going to, if you've got your Bible, can turn to Hosea chapter 1, and we're going to read that in a moment. But before we read the text, I just want to set this in the scene of the whole story of Scripture, because the, when you enter, you read Hosea, it's it's odd, right? To most of us who aren't, don't live in this world most of the time, or none of us do, it's a strange story. And so we want to understand the the whole biblical narrative a bit so we can see where this goes, particularly if you're new to Scripture. What we're going to read is is just going to sound a bit weird. So the biblical story, I often use seven E's to summarize it. The Bible story starts in Eden. God creates this beautiful garden, this beautiful world. He puts human beings in it, but humans decide we're going to choose the knowledge of good and evil rather than life. And as a result, sin and death enter the world. And God says, is okay, ultimately, I'm going to destroy sin and death through one of your offspring. And he speaks to the woman. He says, you, to the woman, you're going to have a seed, a descendant who will crush sin and death, and that will, and you will prevail. But it's going to take time. So that's, the, that's how the Bible begins. And then as the Bible story goes on, we hear, the well, like, n- next thing is the election of Abraham. We hear, actually, that seed, this promised rescue, that's going to come from a man called Abraham's family. And so Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, all the, uh, all the way, Judah, all these characters, we're going to see that the seed is going to come from the line of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah, and so on. And so that's the next big thing that happens. You then follow their story down into Egypt and back out again in the powerful Exodus story in which God is liberated, uh, where God liberates Israel out of captivity in Egypt into their own land. Eventually, they set up and they establish what I've called an empire, a kingdom under David and Solomon, these great powerful kings. And they build a temple and they establish their own land and their own lineage and a line of kings. 
But the line of kings doesn't go well because very early on they begin to get into worshipping false gods some, and on both, both in the north and the south and the kingdom splits into two chunks. And you can see that on this map that there's a, an Israel in the north and Judah in the south become different nations, really. They function like different um, communities, different governments, different places of worship. And much of the Old Testament prophet literature happens in that period where we've effectively got two. So after David and Solomon and before the next thing that happens, which is the exile where Israel get removed from their land and deported in the case of the north to Assyria, which is up in sort of the Caucasus really now. And in the south's case, they get deported to Babylon, which is modern day Iraq. And that happens as the next thing. So that's because the line of kings is gradually unraveling and the people are getting into more and more false worship. And most of our prophetic books, including Hosea and Jonah, are in between those two sections of the story. And then eventually Israel is exiled, and then they remain there for uh, uh, 70 odd years. And then in various waves, they come back to the land, begin re become reestablished as a nation in preparation for the day when G the Lord Jesus will come in person and come to embody the rescue of God in human form to die on the cross, to rise again from the dead on Easter Sunday. And of course, we are now in the sixth section of the story between Easter and the end. And no one knows when that, when that day will come, but we are living in that section of the biblical story. So that's just a very short summary of the biblical story. But in that setting, Hosea, who really appears in some ways in the middle of it, Hosea has come to, to preach and to live out the reality that God is committed in steadfast love to his people, no matter what they do. And effectively, his message is this, Israel is unfaithful, but God is not. Israel loves any, any person who comes along, but God doesn't. He remains committed to his people and he remains committed to you in spite of that idolatry. So that's the heart of what Hosea is going to say in this book and in this chapter. And so we're going to read Hosea chapter 1, beginning at verse 1. The word of the Lord that came to Hosea, son of Beeri, during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and during the reign of Jeroboam, son of Jehoash, king of Israel. When the Lord began to speak through Hosea, the Lord said to him, Go, marry a promiscuous woman and have children with her, for like an adulterous wife, this land is guilty of unfaithfulness to the Lord. So he married Gomer, daughter of Diblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. Then the Lord said to Hosea, call him Jezreel, because I will soon punish the house of Jehu for the massacre at Jezreel, and I'll put an end to the kingdom of Israel. In that day, I will break Israel's bow in the valley of Jezreel. Gomer conceived again and gave birth to a daughter. Then the Lord said to Hosea, call her Lo-Ruhamah, which means not loved, for I will no longer show love to Israel that I should at all forgive them. Yet I will show love to Judah, and I will save them, not by bow, sword, or battle, or by horses or horsemen, but I, the Lord their God, will save them. After she'd weaned Lo-Ruhamah, Gomer had another son. Then the Lord said, call him Lo-Ami, which means not my people, for you are not my people, and I am not your God. Yet... The Israelites will be like the sand on the seashore, which cannot be measured or counted. In the place where it was said to them, you're not my people, they will be called children of the living God. The people of Judah and the people of Israel will come together. They will appoint one leader and will come up out of the land, for great will be the day of Jezreel. 
And then we're going to jump to just read chapter 3 as well. It's very short. Chapter 3 of verse 1. The Lord said to me, Go, show love to your wife again, though she is loved by another man and is an adulteress. Love her as the Lord loves the Israelites, even though they turn to other gods and love the sacred raisin cakes. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and about a homer and a lethek of barley. And then I told her, you are to live with me for many days. You mustn't be a prostitute or be intimate with any man, and I will behave the same way towards you. For the Israelites will live many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or sacred stones, without ephod or household gods. Afterwards, the Israelites will return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. They will come trembling to the Lord and to his blessings in the last days. This is the word of God. It's never happened to me, praise God, but being a victim of adultery is a horrendous experience. And plenty of us don't need to be told that because tragically we have experienced it for ourselves. And the feeling of rejection is just awful. The sense of betrayal from being tricked by somebody who we deeply trust is just appalling. It's so alienating and horrifying. The practical implications for us, for our own daily lives, our, our home life, about our friendships, our children, they can be devastating. It's a awful, awful experience you wouldn't wish on anybody. And one of the dynamics that makes it so painful, as some of us have lived through, is the tension between being justly angry with what the person has done to us, and yet at the same time feeling this commitment based on our history with them, that we feel committed to them legally and emotionally and historically and theologically even. I've made promises to this person and this is what they've done. And we have this horrible tension between, I'm furious with what you've done, but I also still feel very committed, connected, and maybe still in love with you. And that tension is excruciating to carry as a person. So on the one hand, we feel furious with what they've done. How could you do this to me? You've betrayed me. And on the other hand, we made promises to them before God and we made a home with them and we feel committed to them, and we may have children with them, and that tension is incredible. The, the tension makes the anger greater, right? It's, it's like you feel angry, but you feel committed, and the commitment actually makes the anger worse, because if we weren't committed, we could just shrug it off and say, ah, well, I never really loved you anyway. What does it matter? But we don't do that, because we are invested. We are very committed to them, and it's very hard to describe how that tension feels like if you've never been through it. And that's the reason for the story of Hosea. That dynamic, that fact that it's very difficult to understand what it's like if you haven't lived through it, is why the prophet Hosea is given this extremely strange mission, effectively, to live out that tension, feel it for himself, and then for God to say, that's what it's like to be me. That's what it's like for me to love and be committed to Israel with all my heart, and yet to find that they continually cheat on me with other gods. God has been through exactly the same process. He is a faithful husband to Israel, and she is an unfaithful wife to God, constantly running off with the idols of the day, the Baal, Asherah, Moloch, whoever they are, and then coming back to him and saying, I'm so sorry, Lord, I'll never do it again. And God's saying, I will take you back because I love you, but oh, it's so painful that you won't remain committed to me as I am to you. So God knows what it feels like to have your spouse say to you, I'm so sorry, they meant nothing to me, I'll never do it again. 
and then to cheat on you again and break their promises. God's lived through it. Now, for those of us who have experienced that kind of betrayal, that in a strange way is deeply encouraging. But it's also for those of us who haven't, and for all of us, it's really important that we understand what it means for God to be committed to us, his people, Israel, the church, for him to be committed to us in spite of our unfaithfulness often to him. So God calls Hosea to live through the exact same thing. Chapter 1, verse 2 to 3. When the Lord began to speak through Hosea, the Lord said to him, Go, marry a promiscuous woman and have children with her, for like an adulterous wife, this land is guilty of unfaithfulness to the Lord. So he married Goma, the daughter of Diblaim. Now, be very clear, this is not because women are somehow more promiscuous than men. I say, if you read the Old Testament, you definitely don't get that impression about men and women. In my pastoral experience, that is definitely not the way. I would say, if anything, it's the other way around. Men are generally more prone to promiscuity than women. More, sometimes sociologists call it more sociosexuality, just more likely to be promiscuous as a rule. So this is in no way a verdict on women generally, or, oh, well, yeah, women are always responsible for breaking. That's not what's happening at all. The reason that God is saying this is because the God-Israel relationship is pictured like a husband and a wife. And so obviously Israel playing, plays the part of the wife in the relationship, so it's an adulterous wife, not an adulterous husband. Well, that's just because God is the husband, Israel's wife. It's really important we say that because otherwise people draw all sorts of wrong conclusions about female promiscuity, which doesn't has happened a lot in the past and doesn't. we don't need any of that. But Hosea has a unique calling to marry an unfaithful wife because he's playing the God role in the God-Israel relationship. Now, no one today, just to be clear, is called to this. Like, God's not going to give... Summon you or me to say, you also must now go marry a promiscuous woman. We're not called to that any more than we're called to be swallowed by a fish like Jonah will be. But Hosea's calling makes his preaching and his application vivid and visceral in a way that it wouldn't be otherwise because he really feels it. He knows what it's like. And so as we go through this series over the next few weeks, we're going to see some very strong language and deep guttural emotion that's going to come from Hosea partly because he is living through the realities he's preaching about in a way that very few people ever do. Now, reading through chapter 1, you notice the tension between anger and commitment that I was talking about just now. So I'll give a few examples. So verse 4, Gomer conceived and bore him a son. Then the Lord said to Hosea, call him Jezreel because I will soon punish the house of Jehu for the massacre at Jezreel and I'll put an end to the kingdom of Israel. That is, God is angry with Israel for the massacre they've committed, and he's going to bring judgment. So there's anger here. Verses 6 to 7. Then the Lord said to Hosea, Call her lo ruchama, which means not loved, for I will no longer show love to Israel that I should at all forgive them. Sounds very angry. Yet I will show love to Judah, and I will save them, not by bow, sword, or battle, or by horses or horsemen, but I, the Lord their God, will save them. And that word yet is powerful in there. I, I am angry with this, but I am committed and I'm going to do this. Verses 9 to 10. Then the Lord said, call him Lo-Ami, which means not my people, for you are not my people and I'm not your God. Now that sounds like God said, we're done. Yet the Israelites will be like the sand on the seashore, which can't be measured or counted in the place where it was said to them, you're not my people. It will then be said to them, they will be called children of the living God. 
So again, we're seeing this tension work itself out. It's not that God is losing his rag and then going, oh, do you know what? I will take them back. God is trying to help us and help Hosea understand the tension that is experienced when you are angry with someone for what they've done and you remain deeply committed to them. And that tension is reflected in that word yet. God is angry with Israel for the massacre at Jezreel and for worshipping idols, but he's committed to them because he made a covenant with them, with Abraham and with Isaac and Jacob and Moses and all the rest. I made these promises to you and I'm going to keep them, but I'm furious with you for breaking the covenant in the way that you have. Yet I'll show love to Judah and I will save them. Yet the Israelites will be like the sand on the seashore. And in many ways that tension runs throughout the whole Bible. God's righteous justice means that he will always judge idolatry and adultery and injustice for what it is. But his steadfast love means that he will keep covenant no matter what happens. And you find that even in the revelation of God's name in Exodus 34. The Lord, the Lord, merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, yet he won't leave the guilty unpunished, but he will do this, he'll visit the sins. So we've got this tension actually expressed in what it is like to be God, because God's hatred of sin and God's love for human beings are entirely compatible, and they're both expressed in his nature. And a phrase we often use to describe that is that God hates the sin and loves the sinner. A lot of people struggle with that. They go, how, how is it possible to do that? Because God is able to see you in spite of your sin. He's able to say, I hate that thing that you did. And to be honest, guys, sometimes I do too. I can look at my own life and I go, I hate that sin I committed. I'm so angry with myself. I can't believe I did that. Right? So you do it too. You hate the sin and love the sinner because you love you. So does God in a much more consistent and holistic way. He does hate the sin. He's angry with sin, furious at it. He will judge it and thoroughly committed in steadfast love to his people. But obviously that does leave open the question of how God is going to respond to Israel and Judah's repeated idolatry. If God's people keep being unfaithful to God, what's God going to do about it? So I understand what he feels. He's angry at sin. He's committed in steadfast love to his people. But what's he going to do about that given that the people keep sinning? How's he going to respond? Or you might put it in the context of Hosea again. So Hosea's married Gomer. She's cheating off with all of these other guys. Hosea takes her back. But what's Hosea going to do if she just keeps leaving him and then coming back and leaving and coming back? Is he ever going to do anything about that? What if, as we find out she does, what if Gomer ends up getting into such a mess that she sells herself into slavery to somebody else in order to pay for it? So how, what's Hosea going to do then? You might ask even in the New Testament context, how is God going to be both just in his judgments against sin and the justifier of those who have faith in Jesus? How is God going to do both of those things at the same time? And the answer that scripture gives us, and particularly in this book, is redemption. Redemption is the point at the top of the triangle where, if you like, anger and commitment or righteous judgment and steadfast love and faithfulness or whatever we call them, the point where they meet it's the way that they come together. Gomer's, who is Hosea's wife, Gomer has apparently got into such a mess that she has sold herself into slavery. We're not entirely sure of the backstory as to why that's happened, but we look at her enslaved to someone else, and then we see Hosea go, how is he going to express both the demands of righteous justice and the demands of steadfast love at the same time? What's he going to do? And the answer is he's going to redeem her. He's going to buy her out of slavery. 
He's going to put his resources on the line to liberate her from the self-imposed captivity that she's got herself into. And he's going to set her free and recommit his love to her. That's what Hosea is going to do. And that's what God does for Israel. Chapter three, verses one to two. The Lord said to me, go show love to your wife again, though she's loved by another man and is an adulteress. Love her as the Lord loves the Israelites, though they turn to other gods and love the sacred raisin cakes. By the way, nothing against raisin cakes. This is a form of, you know, it's a thing you eat in pagan worship. So don't worry about that. So I bought her. I, her husband, she'd committed to marry me. I'd committed to marry her. She sold herself into slavery. And the only way I could get her back was to literally pay money to her slave owner to set her free so I could have her back as my wife. And so I bought her for 15 shekels and about a homer and a lethic of barley. Goma is loved by another man and an adulteress, but God tells Hosea, I want you to love her the same way I love Israel. So he redeems her. He bears the cost himself and he pays the price to buy her back. And it is a marvelous picture of what God does for Israel. Israel is still unfaithful. Israel is still gallivanting off with other gods. They turn to other gods. That's what they're doing. They love the sacred raisin cakes. They, they, any, any idolatrous worship, Israel gets in on it. But I still love her, God says. And so I've asked you to do this so that you can see that that's what I do as well. I am going to go and liberate her out of slavery. I'm going to buy her back so that she might be committed to me again. She has become a vassal state to the nations around. Syria, Assyria, Babylon, Egypt, whoever it is. And I'm going to buy her out. I'm going to get her back because I love her. And I want the demands of my righteous justice and the demands of my steadfast love to be satisfied. And so I'm going to bring redemption. I'm going to bring freedom. I'm going to pay the price to set her free. I'm going to bear the cost myself. That's ultimately what you have to do. I mean, instead of saying you bear the price, you can't pay the price. You don't have it. You're a slave. I will pay the price. I will put my resources on the line to set you free and bring you back out of the slavery into which you have sold yourself from exile and ultimately from sin and death. And redemption is how the righteous justice of God and the steadfast love of God are reconciled in Scripture. Because this is the story not just of Israel way back when. This is the story of you and me. We have sold ourselves into slavery to sin and death. We say, you know what, I like sin. I like other gods. I like pursuing as if they're going to fulfill me and satisfy me. Money, sex, power, whatever it is, I love those guys. I'm going to worship them for a bit. Oh, actually, God, yeah, you've been committed to me too. I'd quite like to come back to you now. Oh, no, I just feel a bit little bit. I just think I need a bit more in my life. Oh, yeah, great, go for that. Oh, actually, Lord, I'm really sorry. I shouldn't, and now I feel conflicted. Would you have me back? And God says, yes. Okay, fine, great. I, I feel a bit better now. I'm going to go back and worship other gods. And we live that dynamic all the time. We've run off with idols. We've been unfaithful to God. And because of God's righteous justice, the price to redeem us from slavery to sin has to be paid. We can't pay it. Yet because of God's steadfast love, he pays the price to buy us out. It's not 15 shekels of silver and some barley. It's the blood of Christ is what it costs. That's what it costs. It costs Jesus to die for you and for me. My sin, my compromise, my running off with other gods and then going, oh God, can I do this? Oh no, and then coming back, oh God, I'm so sorry, I'll never do it again. And then you're doing it again. The price of that sin in Andrew and in you, the price is the blood of Christ. That's what it cost him 
That's what he had to pay to liberate us from the slavery he'd sold ourselves into. And he puts all his resources on the line to set us free and he bears all the cost himself. He says, I know you can't pay it, Andrew. I know you're trapped. I know that you are a slave, even though you're a voluntary slave, you're still a slave to the powers that you've given yourself over to. And I love you too much to allow that to continue. So I am going to pay the price of my son to liberate you. And by redeeming us through Christ, God satisfies his righteous justice and his steadfast love at the same time. And they meet at the cross of Christ. Hallelujah. And then he says to us what Hosea says to Gomer, come back and live with me. You mustn't be intimate with any other men. You mustn't be intimate with any other gods. You must be faithful to me and I will behave the same way towards you. That's what Hosea says to his wife. That's what God says to his wife, the people of God, Israel, the church, you. He speaks to you and he says, I've paid for you and I want you to come back and live with me. And I want you to be faithful to me and never go off and worship another God. And I'll behave the same way to you. I'll be totally faithful to you as well. How about it? You know what that means for your life on a daily basis? It means that you are not your own. And I'm not my own. I was in a friend's house recently and I noticed that they had one of those, you know, this sort of little card, um, cards that people have framed? And it just had this line and it said, I am mine. And I just clocked it. I didn't have a conversation with them about it, and I, but I just thought, wow, okay, that's an interesting statement. I am mine. And then I was on my way out of church a couple of weeks ago, and I noticed um, my friend Neil, who will be known to many of us in the church, an outstanding worship leader and pastor in the church, and I noticed that he had just got a tattoo while he was, uh, he was on his sabbatical these last uh, few months, and he got a tattoo of one of the things he did. And across his arm here it says, not my own. And I... I just reflected on the contrast between that placard in my friend's house, I am mine, and then I thought, not my own. And I thought, that is a beautiful summary of what Hosea is trying to teach us as a result of the redemption of God that has been made available in Christ, actually, for us, and that Hosea had to live through and enact for us. Not my own is a direct quotation from the Apostle Paul, where he says, 1 Corinthians 6, 19, you are not your own, you were bought with a price therefore honor God with your body there's also a quotation from the Heidelberg Catechism which uh, I love and I know Neil does too that's why he's got it I am not my own but I belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful savior Jesus Christ because he's fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and he set me free from the tyranny of the devil and some of us are living today as if we are our own we're living more like I am mine than not my own. That's how we live. We're living like Goma before her redemption, as if we are ours, unbought, unredeemed. My money's mine. My sex life's mine. My time is my own, and you can't do anything about it. And through the prophet Hosea, God wants to speak to you directly this morning. Say, no, you're not your own. If, you, if you're in Christ, if you've come to Christ in faith and repentance, you're not your own. You've been baptized into Christ. You're not your own. You belong to him. He's paid the price to redeem you, and now you're his. And so that behavior or that corner of your life, that thing that you're doing, God wants to say, it's time to come back to him and say, Lord, I'm going to be faithful to you as you are faithful to me. It's time to surrender your life to the Lordship of Christ, who has paid for you with his most precious blood. 
So what I want to do is lead us in a prayer of, of confession. Um, in a moment, we're going to take communion, um, but I want to lead us in this prayer, which is a prayer that we, in many churches, people actually say before they come to communion as a way of saying, Lord, for me to come to the table and receive bread and wine is actually a way of saying, I am yours and you are mine. And I can't do that while I'm still holding on to sin. So we need to confess our sins and lay them down and repent before we come to the table. And so I'm going to lead us in this prayer. The words will appear on the screen. And I'd love it if you could pray it with me as we do. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we have sinned against you and against our fellow men in thought, word and deed, through negligence, through weakness, through our own deliberate faults. We are truly sorry and repent of all our sins. For the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, who died for us, forgive us all that is past and grant that we may serve you in newness of life to the glory of your name. Amen. And at that point, the pastor in the service says to the people, May Almighty God, who forgives all who truly repent, have mercy upon you, pardon and deliver you for all your sins, confirm and strengthen you in all goodness and keep you in life eternal through Christ our Lord. Amen. Let's worship God and let's come to the table in a moment as an act of devotion and commitment to the God who is full of steadfast love and faithfulness.